Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, we've seen continued growth from the newest social media entrant, uh, Clubhouse. Yeah, so Clubhouse is a audio-only chat uh, application. Uh, according to the folks at Aptopia, it has now reached 4.7 million downloads, which is quite extraordinary, uh, given that you can only access it via invitation uh, for the moment. And uh, recently, the service attracted a tremendous amount of attention uh, because uh, Elon Musk uh, hosted kind of a, an interview show uh, with the CEO of Robinhood about the recent uh, GameStop uh, stock run-up. And so uh, this kind of attention is, is, is attracting a, a lot of interest. For example, uh, Mark Cuban seems to be interested in, in entering this space with a, a, rival chat, a rival application called Fireside uh, that uh, would provide a way to uh, create uh, podcast shows uh, today Clubhouse doesn't really have any way to record uh, its, uh, its chats, uh, but we can really see a blurring between this kind of impromptu chat application and what we have historically thought of as, as a podcast. Right now, Clubhouse doesn't have a clear indication of how they might monetize the platform. Uh, obviously, as you noted, Ross, it's still an invitation only, so presumably they'll start to uh, re reveal how they might monetize the platform in the coming months. Uh, Mark Cuban with the Fireside app does look like they'll try to monetize those conversations. And ultimately they're allowing podcast hosts to talk directly to their fans. So it looks a lot like the, the digital equivalent of talk radio. Um, and you know, I think we see this kind of broadly across the, a number of, of ways that you take something that was already existing in maybe a more analog world and then you you digitize it you bring it to an kind of an app yeah app mark, uh, platform mark mark cuban very much going back to his roots uh if he uh gets back into this uh, audio application space uh of course he uh he made uh his uh his fortune in selling broadcast.com uh, one of the early audio hubs on the internet uh, to uh, to Yahoo uh, back in the day, one of the largest uh, uh, transactions of, of the web 1.0 era. Uh, but it, it also, uh, and, and there's also been uh, talk of Clubhouse attracting a lot of high profile folks uh, to its platform, uh, like uh, Oprah, uh, for example, uh, I, I think that's maybe just a rumor for now, but but it does uh, raise a point that uh, Sean, you know, we have discussed several times on the podcast, uh, which is diversification of revenue. Um, we've seen that come up uh, on Twitter uh, recently uh, as uh, they seek to move beyond uh, advertising, uh, which is of course very dependent on scale in an environment where their audience really doesn't seem to be growing. So what they're trying to do is to better monetize their existing audience and seem to be looking at a range of options for that, including uh, purchasing uh, an application called Review, uh, a competitor's Substack that would 
allow people to create um, paid newsletters, uh, potentially charging for an enhanced version of TweetDeck, uh, which is a power user tool for tracking multiple accounts, uh, perhaps charging uh, their most popular influencers uh, to tweet uh, once they reach a certain follower threshold. So uh, in its most recent earnings, uh, Twitter saying that a whole bunch of things are, are on the cards, uh, are, are on the table. Uh, they don't really expect a lot of monetization from these efforts in 2021, but it could be laying the foundation for a, a very different look for the service down the road. Yeah, and they've been, obviously, this has been something that's been building for Twitter now for, for some time. Jack Dorsey mentioned in their Q2 2020 earnings call that he saw a world where subscriptions would be complementary to what they're doing. Uh, there's been job postings for new jobs that will uh, build, help build out subscription platforms. Uh, we also saw a discussion this week from Jack Dorsey around allowing users to potentially pick which algorithms they want to dictate how their feed is is driven. So I think that's a really interesting idea and, and probably gives us a sense of where algorithms and AI will go. Uh, right now, the algorithms that that define the Facebook feed, the Twitter feed, all of that are specified by the company and presumably designed to maximize advertising revenue, other things like that, uh, along with help with discovery, surface the things that you're that you typically engage with. I mean, ultimately they're trying to drive engagement. So if they feel like you're, if you're engaging with certain content, that content will likely surface high um, in their algorithms. But uh, the idea that we could pick a variety of different algorithms and allow those to, um, to dictate our social feeds, I think is a really interesting one and could add in new, new aspects. And maybe that's something that uh, Twitter or others might monetize moving forward. So we'll see uh, that. And it, and obviously isn't just Twitter that will be looking at how to monetize it. They, they are one of the more mature social uh, platforms. I think a lot of their shareholders argue that they haven't mon monetized sufficiently enough thus far. And so they probably have the most pressure to, uh, to monetize, but Snap, Pinterest, others are all looking at how do we better monetize these platforms and how do we monetize engagement? And, and even the companies that have done the best job of monetizing advertising, Facebook and Google are coming under, uh, are, are seeing that revenue model come under increasing pressure uh, as we see things like the demise of third-party cookies and uh, uh, Apple uh, you know, requiring disclosure about tracking um, so, uh, uh, Google, you know, as, as we've discussed on a previous podcast has a number of things in the works, uh, but, um, you know, there, there are certainly a lot of, uh, changes happening there that are placing a stronger emphasis on privacy than we've seen in the past. Yeah. And I think Ross, you make a really good point. I mean, if you look at the privacy changes that Apple is implementing and the impact that that will have on, on advertisers, I think the number from Facebook was something like they they made during the quarter $8.68 per active user or something like that. So they are, are really doing a phenomenal job of monetizing each and every individual, at least on 
on an average basis. And, uh, and inevitably that will be hit by some of these changes that are coming into Apple. Um, Twitter is looking at how do we actually monetize the service as opposed to monetizing the, the users who are there and, and kind of the, the byproduct, if you will, of the users being there. I think Twitter is looking at, is there a way to more directly monetize the, the service? I think that would be a very hard proposition for, for others, you know, for Facebook and others to, to uh, suddenly start charging um, for things directly. And, and obviously I think Twitter will be looking at how can we take our most active users, add value to those users and then charge for, for that. I, I'd argue in that respect, they're kind of taking a page from LinkedIn's playbook, which, uh, which offers a number of premium services for some of their most active users, depending on what they're there for, job search, recruitment, et cetera. Yeah, and, and LinkedIn, to your point, has done a, a really great job of direct monetization. Um, I, I don't even know if they are heavy supporters of, of uh, you know, what I'll call advertising generally, uh, but you do see them. Yeah, there's direct- definitely advertising on the service. Right, yeah. but you definitely see a lot of direct monetization through uh, additional services that you can add on top of, of what you're doing. Uh, and we've probably all taken advantage of those at a different, you know, different points throughout our career. So that's what they, uh, you know, what that business model will suggest is that maybe it's not for everyone all the time, but it's for a lot of people some of the time. In other kind of work-related news, we saw that uh, Salesforce published a blog post this week saying that. Uh, they are going to implement new strategies for the, the future of work that it isn't the nine to five that we have long been accustomed to. They highlight three different types of working arrangements. One will be a flexible work arrangement. So when it is safe to return to the office, employees around the globe will be able to work a flexible schedule. They'll come into the office maybe a couple of times a week one to three times a week, they note in the blog post for presentations, meetings, meeting with customers, other things like that. There will be a group of employees who will be fully remote. So they will be able to work out of their home offices or elsewhere. And then there will be some employees who will be office-based, the smallest population of their workforce they claim in the blog post. And they will work from the office four to five days a week as their, their jobs require it. And uh, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda uh, could not be reached for comment. Uh, after pioneering these, uh, these kinds of policies uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, we, and we also saw an interview that CNBC published with J.P. Morgan's co-president, Daniel Pinto, where he talked about their hybrid work uh, approach as well. J.P. Morgan, of course, has about 260,000 employees and um, he doesn't see a world where everybody comes back to work. He also doesn't see a world where nobody comes back to work, that there, there will need to be some, some structure that takes place there. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, shakes out when we do start going back to work. And, and this is a company that has uh, invested seriously uh, in, in real estate, you know, building a Salesforce Tower in the heart of downtown San Francisco. Uh, they also have a huge building here in New York, uh, right, uh, right next to Bryant Park, uh, 
uh, and um, uh, you know, but but also a company that's uh, has a reputation for you know trying to uh, to think a bit out of the box, uh, th- you know, think differently about work. Really, has uh, you know whole whole business model basically is uh, focused on kind of a, a different way to work and, and acquire services. So, uh, in, in in that respect, it's uh, it's it's not um, too too surprising. But uh, but you know, that's I, I think seems to encapsulate the uh, general attitude we've seen from a lot of companies uh, for a wide range of their staff, certainly not all, you know, because I think particularly a lot of development work uh, may be, um, you know, you, you could see the benefits uh, for some collaboration, in-person collaboration. But for example, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with uh, uh, AWS, some folks from AWS who work with uh, game developers, uh, and they talked about how, you know, during the pandemic, game development was historically focused on, uh, you know, having these studios. We, we talked a little bit last week about how Google was shutting down some of these, these studios, uh, but now these teams are really uh, all around the world, and it's sort of nonstop development, and one team kind of, you know, is perpetually handing off to the next as the, as the working hours shift. So. Yeah. To your earlier point, Ross, they own a tremendous amount of real estate, 1.6 million square feet in San Francisco in the tower alone, probably Mm -hmm. other uh, real estate outside of the tower and, and not to mention all the real estate they have in other cities. So it feels to me like they are making a big bet that there is a group of employees that want to come back. They're also making a big bet on the growth of the company that they'll be able to fill 1.6 million square feet of office space with the smallest part of their workforce population over time, that uh, there'll still be a high demand to be in the office. And you know, both JP Morgan and, and Salesforce see this vision where you're probably doing some type of ro- rotational model where you're you know sharing a desk so it will make these offices more efficient they'll they'll be in theory they'll be fuller at uh, different times as you uh, you know you won't have as many empty offices because they'll be shared across the the workforce you'll have flexible seating other things like that um, but it does seem like they're making big bets that there will be a, still, a, I think, a big group of the population that's going to want to be in the office, want to be in meetings, want to be entertaining clients and customers. And clearly, Salesforce acquisition that was announced at the end of last year to buy Slack for uh, close to $28 billion signals this, this need to collaborate in, uh, in a digital way across digital platforms with your workforce, regardless of where they are. So in, in some ways, they were already building this for themselves and for, for other organizations that they think will follow their lead. Yeah, great, great point uh, on Slack and, and a great way to promote Slack. Uh, you know, an- another thing that we, we may be seeing in the near future is uh, these digital, digital avatars uh, showing up on some of these meetings uh, today or the, this week. Uh, Epic Games, uh, makers of the Unreal uh, Engine, uh, showed off a new tool they're working on to create metahumans. Uh, these are incredibly realistic uh, human faces and heads uh, that are not just photos, but three-dimensional 
uh, have very lifelike uh, uh, movement. And of course, uh, Epic Games is in the game development business. You can see the obvious application for creating uh, game characters, but uh, certainly seems like there are applications beyond this as we start to look uh, toward uh, virtual reality and, uh, and other types of, of uh, virtual, virtual meetings. Yeah, we saw LG at uh, CES introduce some of their products using a, a what they called a digital influencer. This was essentially a, a virtual persona that had an Instagram account and had a whole persona. She was a you know a, a DJ. She was really into music, but it was all all a, a virtual individual. So I, I think these have really big implications for advertising for you know for Think about walking into a retail store. You could have uh, the retailer's persona there in, in, in its digital space on, on the displays. As we see transparent displays, these start to be built into to the windows of, of buildings, perhaps, or the windows of stores, at least. So we could see um, these play a much bigger role, not only in the workplace, but I think also beyond that. So uh, more to come there. Uh, and then in our final story of the week, we saw that uh, the TikTok sale to Oracle and Walmart has been shelved as part of President Biden and his administration's review plans. So um, it sounds like it has been shelved indefinitely. And, uh, you know, coming from Washington, D.C., we know that uh, nothing is indefinite here. <laughs> so that could always change. But uh, President Biden appears to be undertaking a much broader review of President Trump's initiatives, obviously across the board, but also looking here specifically at security risks from Chinese tech companies. So I, I think in our first podcast, uh, you know, after the inauguration or perhaps even uh, after the election, uh, we talked about the scrutiny that the Biden administration will uh, be under in terms of its um, China policy, one of the areas where most people seem to feel uh, as if their direction will not diverge as strongly from the Trump administration's as, as we have seen uh, on, say, a number of other issues such as uh, the environment and, uh, uh, you know, COVID policy and, and so forth. But, uh, but this was always one that was perhaps, uh, um, you know, more, more of a stretch in terms of what intelligence could be gained uh, from this uh, dancing application, even though apparently it does collect, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of data. Uh, and uh, on the podcast, we talked about a lot of the implications of forcing sales of, uh, of companies to local entities and the challenges uh, that, that, uh, that that opens up uh, as, as you start to think about it on a, a global scale. Um, in other Chinese uh, company news, uh, Huawei, which has been the primary target of uh, of, of government uh, regulation uh, of, of of U.S. government uh, action uh, in terms of a Chinese company suing the FCC for uh, allegedly overstepping its bounds uh, in deeming it a national security risk, uh, which has uh, had devastating implications for the company in terms of it not being able to secure access to 
critical uh, U.S. developed technologies such as Android uh, and, um, and, and various uh, chipsets um, and uh, has been extended, I think, excuse me, to the, to the PC business as well. And that has uh, affected their ability to compete, uh, not just in the U.S., but in other uh, parts of the world where it was much stronger, such as, um, such as uh, notably Europe. So, uh, we, you know, we've seen statements from uh, Huawei reaching out to the Biden administration, trying to start a dialogue, uh, but also realistically understanding that, um, you know, a, a lot of this uh, antipathy toward the company started long before uh, the Trump administration, and there will likely not be uh, radical uh, and I, extreme, let me say, uh, <laughs> policy changes uh, taking place in the near future uh, regarding Huawei. But that's not to say things couldn't improve for them. Well, and the other thing we, we've been seeing is a shortage of chipsets. It's kind of hit the auto industry most severely, at least initially, uh, but it probably is spilling beyond that. And um, it's causing auto manufacturers, for example, to cut back the number of shifts. They're slowing their production while chip companies try to, to pick up. And, and some suggest that uh, the, the trade tensions with China and the trade tensions, I'll call them trade tensions, specifically with Chinese companies, is, is helping to um, compound the issues here with, with chip shortages as we start to bifurcate those two tech markets, the U.S. market from the China market. So the, the spillover goes beyond just security concerns and, and starts to impact a wide host of, of businesses um, potentially. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's also been the concern about, you know, uh, to this point, the uh, Chinese government really hasn't invoked uh, similar kinds of sanctions against uh, companies that are very successful in, in the U.S., in, in China, U.S. companies that are successful in China, most notably Apple. Uh, but it really kind of comes down to where you draw the line, uh, you know, toward the end of the administration, uh, the Trump administration, they were taking aim at Xiaomi, which really doesn't even have a strong presence here, but which is rumored uh, to be uh, getting more aggressive here for, for many years. Um, and then, of course, you know, companies like uh, OnePlus or brands like OnePlus, uh, Motorola, which is, uh, you know, owned by a, a Chinese firm um, uh, and, and, and a number of others, uh, handsets, a TCL. Uh, a, n a number of other manufacturers that are either established here or are making inroads here. Yeah, so m more to come. Clearly, it will be uh, it will be a forced priority for President Biden and his administration. And um, it, as much as President Biden has done a lot to reverse some of the initiatives of the prior administration, to your point, Ross, uh, if anything, we'll we'll probably see more work on the China front as we sort that out over the next four years. Uh, so with that, that's probably a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me for free, at least for now, on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.